Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Hey folks, it's that time of the year again. This Thursday, September 12th, is Give for Good Day in Louisville. Give for Good Day is truly the biggest day of the year for donating to the various charities and nonprofits that are operating in town. I'm here to ask you to not forget Forward Radio on that day. Please donate some money to WFMP 106.5 FM here in Louisville. Our radio station is 100% volunteer run, but we are providing a valuable service to the entire city. Where else are you going to be able to listen to shows like Democracy Now!, The Tom Hartman Show, David Pakman, The Ralph Nader Hour, Arnie Arneson, Rising Up with Sonali, Black Agenda Radio, and the progressive economist Richard Wolff? Where else are you going to get all that? And it's free. We also broadcast national progressive shows about the environment, like Radio Ecoshock, Sea Change Radio, the Climate Report, and one of my favorites, Spirit in Action. We're also part of the Pacifica Network for Grassroots Community Radio, so have access to their podcasts, too. And I don't think there's any more entertaining or relevant national shows than La Show with Harry Shearer, one of my favorites, too, The Sonic Cafe, Rockabilly and Blues, and What's the Frequency, Kenneth? And on top of all that, we offer a myriad of locally produced shows, filling you in on what's happening here in Louisville and Kentucky. We've got local shows on education, politics, social justice, the environment, nonviolence, veterans' rights, personal development, and hey, a little bit of science, too. 24 hours a day, every day of the year, we are here fighting for our community bringing you the truth and the vision you need to deal with what's going on in this insane world of ours. So please give to Forward Radio this Thursday, September 12th. It's easy to do. Just go to the website called giveforgoodlouisville.org. That's one word, giveforgoodlouisville.org. And once you're on that webpage, just click on the button that says Donate, and in the search box, type in Fellowship of Reconciliation. That's That's our mothership. Fellowship of Reconciliation. Please do this. Don't let WFMP go silent. We don't accept advertising money on this station, and we don't sneak little blurbs about private businesses into our station identifications either, like certain public radio stations do. We are here for Louisville. We're here for the community. We're here for you. Show us that you're listening. Show that you believe the people deserve a voice. So again, it's this Thursday, September 12th. Go to giveforgoodlouisville.org and search for Fellowship of Reconciliation. And if you're hearing this after that date, you can still donate to us by going to our website, forwardradio.org, and hit the donate button. We really need your help. Thanks, and on with Bench Talk! 
You know about Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest, right? It's a 25-mile trip down I-65. That's the interstate that goes from Louisville to Nashville. It's pretty close, and it's even closer to Louisville than Bardstown or Fort Knox or the Abbey of Gethsemane or all those bourbon distilleries that are down there like Jim Beam, Four Roses, Maker's Mark. Well, right in the middle of all that is Bernheim Forest. This was established back in 1929 and now consists of more than 16,000 acres of forest and garden plants. That's about 25 square miles, which I'm told is larger than the island of Manhattan, except that it's got twice as many trees than Manhattan has people. The Arboretum was designed by the father of American landscape architecture, Mr. Frederick Law Olmsted, who also designed Central Park in New York City, the Biltmore Estate Gardens in Asheville, North Carolina, UC Berkeley, Stanford University, the U.S. Capitol Grounds in D.C., and the parkway system here in Louisville, including Cherokee Park, Iroquois Park, Shawnee, Tyler, Chickasaw Parks, etc. Now, there are some 8,000 different varieties of horticultural plants at the Bernheim Arboretum, including a fantastic holly collection of some 300 different holly specimens. And Bernheim has a research forest, too. It's the largest privately held contiguous forest block in the eastern United States and for 90 years now has been protected from logging or mining, etc. There are some 2,100 unique species that live or take refuge at Bernheim, including 12 of the 14 known bat species of Kentucky. And it's said to be the home of the most diverse collection of snails and slugs in the state. And they've recently spotted a black bear there and a golden eagle. I think there's only like 27 designated research forests in the world. And two of them are in Kentucky, the Robinson Forest run by University of Kentucky and our own Bernheim Forest. Anyway, Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest has been in the news lately because it looks like there is interest now in building both a natural gas pipeline through the property, but also a highway on Bernheim property. Louisville Gas and Electric wants to build an easement for a natural gas pipeline through Bernheim, and the Kentucky Department of Transportation is looking to building some sort of a connector highway between I-65 that runs from Louisville to Nashville and I-71, which runs from Louisville to Cincinnati. Well, the Bernheim people are vehemently opposed to both of these construction projects, and it's fighting any sort of imminent domain takeover. They feel that these two construction projects will irreparably harm both the natural wildlife of the area, which includes two federally endangered bat species, two snail species, and a plant called Kentucky Glade Cress. In addition, they believe that these projects could damage the cave systems, the natural springs, the streams, knobs, and rock outcroppings that these rare species depend upon. Bernheim administrators and supporters also worry that these projects will interfere with the 300,000 people who visit Bernheim every year and that Bernheim provides an invaluable aesthetic, educational, and scientific service to the entire area. I'm still learning about all this myself, but can tell you that you can visit the Bernheim.org website if you want to learn more about this situation. And we'll try to post a link on the Bench Talk Facebook page. 
And there's also going to be some roadshow events planned around the region over the next month. So if you want to hear more about these two planned construction projects, or if you want to talk to people who are fighting it, you might want to go to one of these events. You can find the entire list of roadshow events by doing an internet search for Bernheim Roadshow Calendar. But I can tell you now that the next one is at the Douglas Community Center on Monday, September 9th at 6.30 p.m. Then there's another one at Thomas Jefferson Unitarian Church on Tuesday, September 17th at 6.30. There's one at Quest Outdoors on Wednesday, September 18th at 6. And St. Paul's United Methodist Church on Thursday, September 19th at 7 p.m. And then at Carmichael's Bookstore on Frankfurt Avenue on Wednesday, September 25th at 7 p.m. The Bernheim Road Show is also going to be at Bernheim on Saturday, September 21st at 10 a.m. And then in Bardstown on September 24th and in Elizabethtown on September 26th, plus some other locales in October. We'll try to put a link to the calendar for these events on our Facebook page if you'd like to know more about this situation or hear about what you might be able to do about it. are listening to Bench Talk, the Weekend Science, here on WFMP 106.5 FM here in Louisville, Kentucky. On to the next story about science. Welcome to another episode of a segment we call, How'd We Ever Get That? The goal of How'd We Ever Get That is to demonstrate how scientists, mathematicians, engineers, people like that, how they've influenced our everyday lives. You might not think that science has much to do with you, but you would be wrong. Science affects us all every single day of our lives. Today's example of How'd We Ever Get That is... The Hubble Space Telescope. Now, the Hubble Telescope is different than all the other telescopes you've heard about. This is a space telescope. By orbiting the Earth, it escapes all the image distortions that occur with traditional ground-based telescopes like we're used to. And also, with the space telescope, there isn't the interference by light pollution that we get here on Earth. The Hubble Telescope has recorded some of the most detailed, high-resolution photographs of stars, galaxies, planets, etc. that have ever been taken, and it has given us some of the best looks into the furthest reaches of our outer space ever. Now, the Hubble Telescope will be 30 years old next year, 2020, and it's provided data for some 15,000 different research articles so far. And even though the original name for this instrument was simply the Large Space Telescope, it was 30 years after his death that the folks at NASA decided to call it the Hubble Telescope in honor of one of history's greatest astronomers, Edwin P. Hubble. 
Edwin Hubble really was an amazing person. I think he was a Renaissance man. When he worked at the Wilson Observatory in L.A. back in the 1920s, he had access to the largest telescope in the world at that time, and that scope was good enough that he could see beyond our own galaxy. Instead of our galaxy just being surrounded by fuzzy nebulae, like everyone thought at the time, Hubble realized that there were actually other galaxies out there. He realized that our galaxy, the Milky Way, is not alone in the universe. Another thing that Edwin Hubble is famous for is not just that there are other galaxies in our universe, but they're actually moving. Professor Scott Miller will talk about this at the end of our show today. He'll tell you about an important variable in calculating the movement of these heavenly bodies. It's called the Hubble constant. And how that numerical value is also moving. Edwin Hubble's discoveries have given all of us a lot to think about. Whether you're a scientist, an artist, a philosopher, or a theologian, or just someone who looks up at the night sky and wonders what it all means, Hubble has changed the way we look at the cosmos. For instance, his concept of an expanding universe led to what is now called the Big Bang Theory, and no, I'm not talking about the TV show. The Big Bang Theory is currently the most popular explanation for how the universe began. The idea, I think, is that the universe started with a small singularity, some kind of a thing that was extremely dense, even denser than a black hole, and then it sort of blew up over the next 13.8 billion years to form the cosmos as we know it today. And now we've got the Hubble telescope out there actually photographing the cosmos. Anyway, Scott Miller will give you more detail about this, but what people might not know about Edwin Hubble is that he actually used to live and work in the Louisville area. Hubble was born in Missouri in 1889, but when he was 10 years old, his family first moved to Shelbyville, Kentucky, but eventually they moved into Louisville and ended up on Everett Avenue in the Highlands. Everett Avenue is one of those lovely streets that runs from Cave Hill Cemetery parallel to Bardstown Road and sort of ends at Willow Park near Cherokee Park. And even though Hubble was really more interested in astronomy, his father wanted him to attend law school. So that's what he did. He was a devoted son. He attended law school at the University of Chicago, where he was also a successful athlete. He even led the University of Chicago's basketball team to the conference title one year. But in addition to law school and sports, Edwin Hubble also took as many science and math courses as he could. That was his true love. Hubble was also a Rhodes Scholar and studied in England for a bit. But when his father passed away, he moved back to Louisville to look after his mother and younger siblings. He got a job at New Albany High School just across the Ohio River in southern Indiana At New Albany High School, he taught Spanish, physics, and mathematics, but also coached the boys' basketball team, where they ended up going to state finals that year. Like I say, Edwin Hubble was a Renaissance man, a lawyer, a teacher, an astronomer, and by the way, he served in the U.S. Army during World War I, right after he received his Ph.D. in astronomy. Once that war was over, he popped over to Cambridge University for a while to continue his study of astronomy. But anyway, back to his time at New Albany High School here in Kentuckiana. Apparently, he was a beloved teacher. 
He only taught there for one year, but the annual New Albany High School yearbook then was dedicated to the 25-year-old Edwin Hubble. I'm glad that he at least won that award because even though most people think he should have also received the Nobel Prize for his later research, he didn't. That's because the Nobel Committee did not recognize astronomy as a prize-worthy discipline at that time. But anyway, Hubble taught at New Albany High for a year and then went back to the University of Chicago to study astronomy, and the rest is history. Well, what's in the future for the Hubble Space Telescope? NASA scientists think that there might only be about another five years of functionality left in it. After all, it's been out there orbiting the Earth for 29 years now. There's been a lot of wear and tear on the instruments, and without the space shuttle, it's been difficult to visit the scope much anymore to do any repairs. One of the gyroscopes went haywire last year, but they were able to fix that from the ground. And one of the four telescopes is already not currently functioning, but the other three are still being used. The orbit of the Hubble Space Telescope around the Earth appears to be stable right now and probably will be until the 2030s. But ultimately, NASA thinks that they'll probably just have to let it fall back to Earth after that point, burning up in the sky upon re-entry. In the meantime, it's full steam ahead for the Hubble Telescope. Now let's hear from Scott Miller, Associate Professor at Maysville Community and Technical College, where he teaches physics, astronomy, and mathematics. Take it away, Scott. Scott here. In a past broadcast I did, I mentioned a new way that had been developed to probe the interior of the Earth, and that the results of this latest study called into question some of the models used to describe the Earth's interior. These kind of rifts, so to speak, happen quite often in the sciences, and once rectified, give us a much deeper understanding of the phenomenon being studied. And in the quest for understanding, the better the facts, the better the understanding that can come from those facts. Recently, I received an email from the Space Telescope Science Institute, which oversees the Hubble Space Telescope, that concerned recent attempts to measure the Hubble constant. This involved a new way of using Hubble to gather data about distances and the use of red giant stars. A little background. The Hubble constant is courtesy of Edwin Hubble. Among his many discoveries, Hubble determined from his study of galaxies that the farther away a galaxy is from us, the greater its velocity away from us is. In other words, if one looks at those galaxies that are outside our local group of galaxies, those that are traveling together along with our own Milky Way galaxy, those other galaxies are moving away from us, and the farther away they are, the faster they are moving away from us. Now, one might conclude that this would mean that we are the center of the universe and everything is moving away from us. There are all sorts of jokes that could be started here, but I digress. Or one might conclude that no matter what galaxy we resided in and took measurements from, all galaxies would be moving away and the farther away from us that they were, the faster they would be moving away. Science has always worked from the premise that we are not any more special than any other spot in the universe. Again, all sorts of jokes could be started here. Specifically, the assumption is that the laws of physics, as they operate here, would operate likewise in all other regions of the universe. Applying this concept to the two possible conclusions mentioned above, we would conclude that no matter where we were located, the farther a galaxy was from us, the faster away it would be moving from us. 
This ultimately led to what today is referred to as the Big Bang model. Now, if we get back to Edwin Hubble's initial discovery, a plot of distance versus recessional velocity is pretty linear. Linear graphs, if you recall your Haskell algebra, have something called a slope. The slope is a measure of the change in the vertical axis value with respect to the change of the horizontal axis value, sometimes called the rise over the run. The slope, in the case of Edwin Hubble's graph, is called the Hubble constant. Using the value of that constant, we can determine the distance to a galaxy if we can measure its recessional velocity. The units used for Hubble's constant are either kilometers per second per megaparsec or kilometers per second per megalight year, and basically tell us how much more a galaxy is moving away from us for greater and greater distances in either of those two distance units, megaparsecs or megalight years. Now the fun begins. Since Hubble's initial discovery, there have been many astronomers who have been trying to use different distance indicators visible in their telescopes to extend Hubble's initial graph and to further refine the value of Hubble's constant. For one thing, if we run into objects for which there is not an obvious distance indicator, such as quasars, which are the active cores of distance galaxies, then a good value of Hubble's constant can help us determine their distance. If we get enough light from them, we can determine their recessional velocity, for example, and with the help of Hubble's constant, we can then come up with a distance. But there is a more fundamental reason driving the search for a better and better value of Hubble's constant. If one plays with the units mentioned above, one eventually finds that the units are actually inverse time units, inverse seconds, for example. That implies that if we take the inverse of Hubble's constant, we come up with a time. According to the Big Bang model, the time this determines is related to the age of the universe itself. And this becomes the real driving force for finding a good value for Hubble's constant. This goal was one of the targets of the Hubble Space Telescope, named in honor of Edwin Hubble for all his work, which started our understanding of galaxies in general and the nature of our universe in particular. Its initial target was a class of stars that Edwin Hubble himself used to make his initial discovery, Cepheid Variable Stars. These stars feature a specific variation time period corresponding to a specific maximum brightness. Those with short period changes in brightness reach one maximum brightness. Those with longer period changes in brightness reach a different maximum brightness. So if one spots a Cepheid variable in a distant galaxy and monitors its change in brightness, one can imply what its maximum brightness should be. If it isn't that bright, it must be because of its distance from us, and a comparison of how bright it should be to how bright it actually appears gives us that distance. The early results using the Hubble Space Telescope refined the value to a precision of 10%, much better than ground-based work had done. In 2001, the announced value of this campaign was 72 kilometers per second per megaparsec. But as I indicated at the beginning of this broadcast, scientists strive for better and better precision, and astronomers began to find other ways to explore other distance indicators using other telescopes to do just that, go for better precision. One such observation was of the background radiation. This radiation was predicted to exist by the Big Bang model as a radiation left over at the moment the universe cooled 
to allow neutral atoms to form and allow radiation to be freed up to participate in the expansion of the universe. It was initially discovered using radio telescopes in the early 1960s. Recently, astronomers using the European Space Agency's Planck satellite used detailed measurements of the background radiation to conclude the value of Hubble's constant was 67.4 kilometers per second per megaparsec, significantly different from the ground-based values of 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec, or the more refined values of 72 kilometers per second per megaparsec using Cepheid variable measurements by the Hubble telescope, and even another effort using the Hubble Space Telescope and Cepheid variables leading to 74 kilometers per second per megaparsec. So now comes a new target, red giants. These are huge stars near the end of their lifetimes. Our sun will evolve into such a star some five to six billion years from now, give or take a billion years. According to the article, at a certain point, the star undergoes a catastrophic event called a helium flash, in which the temperature rises to about 100 million degrees and the structure of the star is rearranged, which ultimately drastically decreases its luminosity. Astronomers can measure the apparent brightness of the red giants at this stage in different galaxies, and they can use this as a way to tell their distances. Using the Hubble Space Telescope to measure the brightness of these stars, this recent article indicates a value of Hubble's constant of 69.8 kilometers per second per megaparsec. So, we have a quandary. We have a cluster of values of Hubble's constant that range from about 67 kilometers per second per megaparsec to as much as 74 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And as I indicated, these would then lead to different ages of the universe. According to the article, astronomers have looked for anything that might be causing the mismatch. Dr. Wendy Friedman, who led the campaign leading to this latest value, says in the article, Naturally, questions arise as to whether the discrepancy is coming from some aspect that astronomers don't yet understand about the stars we're measuring, or whether our cosmological model of the universe is still incomplete, or maybe both need to be improved upon. And so the chase continues. Theorists will continue to refine the current models of the universe to give a better target value for Hubble's constant. Observational astronomers will look to the various objects that have been used for distance indicators to make sure we have a better understanding of those objects. The article says that NASA plans an upcoming mission, perhaps launched in the mid-2020s, that will enable astronomers to better explore the value of Hubble's constant across time and space by collecting even more data from these various distance indicators. And, as I said, as we continue to strive for better precision, we will increase and further refine our knowledge of the universe. that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud 
So just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.